I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovations podcast series. This program, featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming, is sponsored by Martin Industries. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L.com. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available on iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. This edition is a little different than the previous ones we've done in this No-Till Influencers and Innovators series of podcasts. Our subject today is Howard Doster, the retired Purdue University ag economist who pioneered the school's top farmer workshops many years ago. A big booster of no-till, I've known Howard for more than 35 years. In fact, Howard was a speaker at our very first national no-tillage conference in Indianapolis back in 1993. And I remember well one of his talks showing the increased value of no-tilling soybeans at the same time as you no-till corn. And that's an idea that's been in the farm press recently on the many benefits of doing that. I know you'll enjoy this entertaining no-till podcast as we share some no-till history and laughs with Howard. Today we're with Howard Doster, and Howard is a retired Purdue University ag economist. For many, many years, ran the top farmer workshops, and I've been to a number- Going there next. All right, right. I've been to a number of them over the years. Got involved with no-till really on. Tell me the first experience you, well, tell me about your planter, the, the original planter that you had on your operation. Oh, you remember that yeah. planter? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, one of my students brought up a two-row planter, fit on an international tractor that his uncle had bought, one of the maybe 50 or 26, I'm not sure how many were made, in the early 50s. International harvester, right? Yeah, and it was based on some ideas that the uh, Purdue Agronomy Department head had. He had this idea for doing a, a one-pass planter, a no-tell, if you right, will. Right. Uh, it might have worked if we had had atrazine, but this was before, yeah. this was just before atrazine, and certainly way before uh, Roundup. It would have worked with Roundup, probably. Anyway, this machine it was a pile of stuff when it got to my place. And I could see that uh, I couldn't get it back together. But I was was working with uh, the ag engineers. They came to our little farm and put out crops. About the time I got this, I think 74, they put out uh, on a Ritchie's Ridge, made it in the, Clarence Ritchie, a, a Ford ag engineer, came back to Purdue and worked for fun and worked with Don Griffith sure. and Jerry Mannering and Sam Parsons, the guys in, in, right. the, I know them in, all. in the tillage study when I got to Purdue and I worked with them and after I got there in 1968. Well, this, the Richie thing, Clarence stuck a, a, a ridger on behind a flail chopper. And so we went from 40 inch rows to 30 inch rows on a ridge. And then they brought out the Purdue planter on April 15th and tried planting on that. And it was a disaster. <laughs> But that was, that's right. what happened. That, that time I had this other planter in my tool shed and, and Clarence took it then, I think back to ag engineering, he was able to figure out what parts were missing and, and he put it together, got it on an, an M, an international M, 
took it to the Indiana State Fair, Moore Williamson picked it up at the old timers booth, and then I didn't know all this was happening. I'm walking through the old timers booth at the State Fair, and I saw this planner, looked kind of familiar, and then I saw my name on the, <laughs> on the board, and it had come from me. So yeah, maybe the first no-tail planner. Right. Talk I had for a while. Yeah, you talk about disasters. I was a Michigan State grad, and Ray Cook was a soil guy who kind of got minimum tillage started. And I remember my dad plow planting. You, okay. you mow board plow. I think we had a two-bottom plow, and it, you made two trips. But the next trip was with the planter. You know, we didn't till that soil at all. If you oh. if you wanted to lose a kidney, there was no better way than using that <laughs> system. And I think we used it two years, and that was it. You did it a second time. I think so. Oh I think. My God. <laughs> oh, 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 those were the days where they tried right. stuff, trying right. stuff, trying right. stuff. So, uh, when when did you first get uh, introduced to no-till? Probably when I came to Purdue in 1968. May have known about, well, oh, Glover Triplet. That's where okay. I learned about it, yes. Right at Ohio State. See, I was at Ohio State for six years, yeah. getting yeah. a PhD before right. I went to Purdue. And yes, so Glover Triplet, and who was the guy he worked with? It was, so he worked with somebody. Uh, Van Dorn. Yeah, yes, Dave Van, Van Dorn, Dorn and, right. and Triplet. Right. They were the people. And are those plots still going? That yes. They, and, yes. Uh, here's what's interesting, because Glover ran, Glover ran them for years, and Warren Dick took them over. And what, is it, they've been there so long, Warren Dick is retired. Okay. And now there's another guy running them. There's an interesting story about these. After Glover first put those plots out, a, a year or so later, he took his wife out one night to look at the plots. And she said, oh, oh my God, you're going to get fired. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> Didn't happen. <laughs> oh, so you met Harry Young early on, right? I did. Yes, I met Harry Young on December fourth, probably nineteen seventy-two. Might have been seventy-one. Mm -hmm. Walt Bisher with with Alice, Alice Chalmers, Chalmers right. wanted to make a movie about our Purdue Top Farmer Crop Workshop right. issues, and uh, and I I was the star of the movie, <laughs> but but. He suggested, and I, I think we had four farmers, and, and one that he suggested was Harry. And uh, so on December 4th, 1971 or two, I met Harry in Evansville, Indiana, in the Executive Inn. Mm -hmm. And I remember Harry saying that uh, that day down at his Christian County, Kentucky, I yep, think. Yep, Hernan, Kentucky. Farm, uh, that they were probably finishing uh, no-till bean harvest. In December. And it started raining, so they probably didn't get done. Anyway. As we were filling out the input form for our linear program crop budget, now, now Frank, I worked with about seven thousand Corn Belt farmers in that budget, right. so I kind of knew what was <laughs> going to happen when they put their numbers in. But I never told them. You know, yeah, a lot right. of times I was surprised too. Anyway, their timeliness was a big issue in that budget. Anyway, I, I'm listening to him answer my questions, and and I found out that he had was getting 1,700 acres of crops a year, and he had 12 or 1,300 acres of land. And guess what? He had enough machinery to be timely in central Indiana on 600 acres. Not on 1,700, but 600. And he was getting 1,700 acres of crops. Wow. Wow, yeah, that. I will always remember. I will always remember that. And of course, then it was fun as we continued to relate with him. We, uh, his son John came up and got a master's with me, and I think his grandson Alex. Yeah, yeah I, I think he was at Purdue yeah. just in the last year or two. Alex is back uh, on the farm. Okay, is he, did he go back to the farm? Yeah. Oh yep. my gosh! But uh, 
note till two of the guys that you were did a lot of work with were Bill Richards and Jim like, Mosley. And there's yeah. two guys that have really made no till. Bill work. Richards and Jim Mosley. Bill was a college friend, different fraternity, but we were friends. And and Jim was a student at Purdue. And uh, in, in, in the first time we caught the class, which I later called How to Go and far, Start Farming with Dad class. Mm -hmm. And Jim was in that first class. Uh, and uh, I was impressed with him. I remember going hunting with him and another student in the class on the other student's rented farm. Jim was skinny, wearing boots, and I don't remember any pheasants to find him, but I do remember Jim spending, <laughs> seemed like all the time, looking for tile and cleaning it with his boot, cleaning out the end of tile. I just remember that. And, and then, for whatever reason, my wife Barbara, who also sure. taught at Purdue, uh, and I, decided to match up Jim, an Indiana young farmer, they, he and his wife Kathy got started on 100% financing, and that's quite a story. Right. Uh, but they got started farming, and Bill, who was already farming when he came to the first 1968 Purdue Top Farmer Workshop, he was farming 1,300 acres, no-till, he but, never, he never right. owned a plow. But these two guys, Jim was around Lafayette, and Bill was 200 miles away at Circleville, Ohio. Bill was Ohio. south of Columbus, right. Ohio. Gotcha. Jim was in Lafayette, Indiana. Uh, and for whatever reason, we put up, introduced them and started meeting with them four weekends a year. Mm -hmm. And we taught them as we learned what became our, our process for now it's called Farm Advisory Board okay. and peer groups. Right. Well, and we've had lots of peer groups over the years, but the one that really worked for us best, and we've had others that worked pretty well, but the ones that worked best was that one because we got them to share balance sheets and budgets the first meeting. Think of that. Right. They wow. dared to do that. and And that is the, I think the key to having a peer group work is you really, and we could go more right. about why they don't work if you don't know that stuff. But when, once you know that, and, and I gotta tell this, <laughs> after a couple of years of this, we're going home one Sunday night from Ohio back to Purdue. And uh, I'm driving, get maybe to Richmond, Indiana, just under the line. My wife Barbara said, you didn't say all that much this weekend looked at her and kept on driving. I think she mainly to keep me awake. Got towards Indianapolis. What she did say wasn't all that good. <laughs> Got to Lebanon, Indiana. Those guys were better than you at everything. <laughs> oh, God, I drove all the way home. Anyway, I called up Jim that night. I, called, I, I repeated what Barbara said, and he laughed. I said, you know, Barbara's right. We did introduce you, we did teach you the processes, but you're better than we are now and everything. Why do you have us come back? He said, don't you know? And I said, tell me. Oh, we like to listen to your thousand and one C minus ideas. <laughs> and we pick out two or three and make a practice out of them. <laughs> Years later, in New Orleans, at the American Society of Farm Managers and Rural Appraisers, I'm an accredited farm manager, and I was there. And, and Jim was awarded their National Distinguished Service Award. And when he's accepting the award, he looked around the room, thanked the farm manager there that dared to, look, to uh, rent him a farm when he didn't right. have anything, and on and on. And then the people that came to Washington, he'd been to Washington once or twice already by that point. And, he thanked, and then he said, and then there's Howard. And people kind of laughed. And they said, yeah, that's right. 
the guy with a thousand and one C minus ideas. <laughs> They'll play Plowed. And Jim said, Kathy and I picked out two or three and made A practices out of them. And that's why we're standing here. Wow. And I cried. Right. I don't blame you. you Eight didn't. years later, St. Louis, same meeting, Bill got the award. That time I sat up in front, but I still cried when, <laughs> when Bill said it. Yes, we've had a... Those guys are still meeting. I know. That's They're great. still right. meeting 40 years later, or however long it's been, 75, whatever, whatever that's been. <laughs> They're still meeting. I think, I think they were there well, two weeks ago. Uh, Jim and Kathy went down, they have a cabin down in eastern Kentucky, and they, they stopped, I think, going through uh, at Bill and Grace. Yes, that's, that's special. You got, you've got lots of stories yeah, like yeah. that. You can be proud of those guys, because Jim Mosley went on to be an undersecretary of agriculture. And Deputy secretary the last Yeah, time. and then he started at a university on the ag program in the Mideast, and then Bill Richards became... Uh, chief of the NRCS. What's interesting about Bill Richards, the first time I was at his farm was in 1973, and he was doing controlled traffic at that oh, yeah, time, yes, and, and we're yes. still not into yes. controlled traffic. Yes. He's been doing it for 50 years. Yes. Never had a plow. Right. Yes, yes, he dared to do it. Yes, and, and he's had fun with it. And I think his dad was a farm equipment dealer. He was, yes, he was. He was a uh, I'm not sure what kind of short line, maybe, but he was a machinery dealer. Right. And, and so Bill was able to farm. And, 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 uh, and they farmed land that wasn't all that good, some of it. Right. But, uh, and, uh, and to follow through in terms of our top farmer workshop stuff, both Jim and Bill ran many, many budgets before they rented land, before they changed machinery. Those kind. I remember the first time I, I interviewed Jim at the Top Farmer Workshop, he had just bought two used little, uh, they happened to be track tractors, same size. And so I was interviewing him on why he got two same size tractors, because it cost about three, $3 an acre more to have that second tractor mm -hmm, as big right. as the first one. And, and so I was interviewing him about this, and I'd been out and taking pictures, and so I have put them up on the screen. Jim refused to look at the audience. <laughs> he and I looked at the screen, and now I'm pretty good at interviewing people, but it was hard to get him to say anything other than, oh. <laughs> Think of that, he's now an accomplished speaker. Right. And he spoke probably 30 years in the 50 times or something that I, well, I know he did some private workshops with me. Yeah, he spoke probably 40 right. times in that workshop over the years. And, and he's become, well, obviously very, very effective. Very, very effective. And still doing stuff. He and Bill still go to Washington. Right. And, uh, uh, and people listen, people still listen to him. Well, yeah, still, guys. still credible. Yeah, you mentioned 1971, 72. That's kind of, 72 is when we started No-Till Farmer. And then in 1993, we started the National No-Tillage Conference, and our goal was, if we got lucky, we would have 300 people in Indianapolis. Oh, <laughs> and we ended up with 860. And that you, was the first one? Yep, absolutely the first one. And I you, spoke I, at that I, one, yeah. You spoke three times. 
and, and, I had and three speeches. Yeah, and you had the flu. Yeah, oh, and yes. you were going back each. I had you speak. I was teaching back. Yep, at Purdue. You went back each night and and taught at Purdue and came back. Yeah. But I remember a couple things that you talked about that first year, and one of them was. Maybe you ought to buy another planter or drill and get your soybeans planted be- oh, at the same time yeah. and not wait till after corn was all done. Yeah, yes, oh yeah, that was, that was fun. Now, did you, it wasn't you, it was the guy that spoke last night here, Scott Shear, yeah. told me this story, which I'll share okay. right now, on, on planters. Uh, Scott met Mike Ellis. Mike Ellis. I've been there a number of times. Me too. And Barbara right. and I worked with him. Right. Uh, first, Mike came to Purdue Tough yeah, Harbor Workshop he was many in Nor- times. He was in northern Kentucky. Yes. And he came many times and and then came up and stayed at our house as as we went on to an ag engineers meeting in, in uh, Chicago in December of 1983, about two weeks after... I created the term site-specific farming in a Purdue Proceedings paper. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, it's a big deal. But didn't know that was going to be Big Ten crop farming, I call it. Anyway, Mike and I went to Chicago. We thought we were going to see a satellite. We went up on top of the hotel. Well, he didn't see it. But that was the beginning. Too much smog in Chicago. Now then, we continued to work with Mike. and, And the part of the story that I will now tell is in 1984, Scott Shear said he started, he was in Kentucky, he yeah. got acquainted with Mike, and he, he said, and he told me this last month, I had a fantastic hour with him last month, and he said that Mike said he was concerned they were farming, I don't know, five, 600 acres or whatever, and they were just, they had some hogs, they had some cows, they were not, just not making it. And, and Mike said, Howard said, get a bigger planter. <laughs> Mike said, we don't have many acres. This is, this is what Scott told me. Howard said, get a bigger planter. <laughs> and Mike said, and sure enough, the neighboring landlord saw us, <laughs> and we got more land. <laughs> I, I didn't remember that story, but, but Scott yeah, told right. that to me last month. And I, well, yeah, I probably did. Mike Ellis, he and his brothers farmed there, and they really benefited from Scott Shear at the University of Kentucky because he had all these practical ideas, and they did them on the Ellis farms, and then Ellis would just capitalize on them. They took... Scott's B minus ideas and made them into A's, better than your C minus. <laughs> okay. Oh, this is, this is fun. This is fun. Yeah. You almost always on the Top Farmer Workshop had one or two no tours. We always, oh, we always had a tillage presentation. Right. The, the 30 years I ran it, plus the five years ahead of that, that I was right. helped start it and so forth. I was the machinery guy. Yeah. And, and, I, and worked with, with Don Griffith and Sam Parson and, Parson, and Jerry Martin. Yep, yep. And I did, I did the economics, and they put the other right. stuff together. And, uh, but I went with them sometimes to the field to do the testing. And, and it, was, it was great fun. We, we always had a tillage presentation. And, of course, over the years, the, the consequences of what farmers were finding out really, really changed. Wow. Right. Wow. From that first conference, we talked a minute ago, and I remember how you told people to get another planter and get soybeans planted right. Yeah. And the other thing I remember from the first conference was Dwayne Beck from South Dakota. Oh, yes. I've been out there after yep, that. At Pierre. 
And he got up and he said, he started his presentation and said, you guys here in Indiana and Ohio, no-till to get rid of the water. And in South Dakota, we no-till to keep every drop that yeah. comes down. Yeah. And that's the difference between areas of the country. And, well, I, I went pheasant hunting out there on some land pretty close to him, really close yeah. to him. And I remember all day seeing this guy with a two-row picker and, and a mounted picker with a wagon behind. He was in that field all day. He never, <laughs> he, he never left. We were hunting around it for a couple of hours. And finally, I went over. I said, how's it doing? He said, about six bushel. <laughs> I remember that story because, you see, he was more than covering his, yeah. his expected cost, his variable cost. Yeah. And so even at six bushel, he was covering a few and repairs, and he didn't have anything else to do, so he was out there. <laughs> and maybe he was looking to see if I was shooting his pheasants. I, I, <laughs> I, like no, I, I like to hear about I, I always remember another story about Dwayne. I think maybe he was in high school, and he had a... He had a summer job or a spring job, and he went to work for some farmer that had a big, some big acreage. And the guy put him on a tractor and said, plow this field. And he, in four hours, he made one round. The field was so big. Wow. <laughs> wow. I didn't wow. think it was like a thousand acre field yeah. or more than that, but yeah. one round in four hours. We'll rejoin the conversation with Frank and Howard in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovations podcast series. Martin Industries invented the No-Till Row Cleaner in 1990 and has been designing and manufacturing attachments and parts for no-till planters ever since. With solutions for every stage of the no-till planting process, Martin Till planter attachments make it possible to plant into higher levels of residue and moisture. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintilt.com. Before we get back to the conversation, Frank is going to share a little-known no-till farmer fact. With so many no-till planter and drill options, it may be difficult for a farmer to decide which ones are best for a particular farming operation. And going back into the archives of No-Till Farmer, I found a story that we ran in April of 1988, some 30 years ago. In fact, it came out that uh, John Morrison was an ag engineer with the Soil and Water Research Laboratory in Temple, Texas, and he showed that there were 864,000 available planting combinations with No-Till. There were all kinds of ideas that could make you fit No-Till correctly to your soils and the crop residue on your farm. Now let's get back to our conversation with Frank and Howard Doster. Howard, when we started the No-Till Conference yeah. in 1992, we had talked about doing this for a couple years, and we got interest, we got involved in some other things, and I kind of put it off. And then in the summer of 1992, Monsanto put on mm. four or five conferences, and there was a guy named Bruno Alisi who, who? Bruno Alisi at Monsanto was the conservation guy. And uh, they backed us as a sponsor for many years, but I decided if we were ever gonna do this, we had Better to do it. do it now. Yes, yes, And yes. I always remember you telling me you were afraid that Monsanto would bury us or yeah. we couldn't make it work. I was. But here we are today. <laughs> well, you had better public relations, Frank. In addition to other things, yeah. you had you 
you had better public relations. And people knew that we didn't have any company line. Yeah. And, yes, yes. And I had, I had a speaker once tell me that uh, you should do what Monsanto does. And I said, what's that? And they said, they take all their speakers to um, St. Louis before the meeting, and they kind of talk about what they're going to talk about. And so they don't conflict, and they kind of get a company line. And I thought about it, and I said, no, I'm not doing that. I want people to get up there and tell us their best ideas, their failures, their everything. And uh, that's what's made it work for us. And uh, people know that we're going to, farmers are going to get up there and they're going to tell you what works and what doesn't. I think that's still a key. And I think farmers appreciate that. They could see. Well, what happened early on is from day one, even that first year in Indianapolis, I stressed the networking to get out in the halls and talk to people. When we started, I mean, we had some people say to us, what are you doing? We can go to a university meeting for 10 bucks or free or pay $15 and get lunch. And your price is $169. And I said, hey, we got a money back guarantee. If you don't like it, we'll give your money back. But the perception was we better go because it's, they must think they're doing something right. It, must, it has value because it has a price. Exactly. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. And, and, uh, and that's important. And now, Frank, you haven't Scott Shear last mm-hmm. night and more, and you've had John Fulton, have you? Yes, we yeah. have in the past. Oh, well, having more of those guys is important, particularly for the, peop- for the people in the audience who don't know them. Right. Or, or their ag engineer at their state university. We always want someone that's got some far out ideas. We've got to f- figure out how to get the land grants involved. See, the land grants are the only have a comparative advantage in the farmer's mind mm-hmm. for doing unbiased cropping systems research and management education, right? Yeah, absolutely. No matter right. how some private business wants to do, they they have a tough time overcoming that perception, and rightly rightly so. They've got right. to sell us hope. Uh, so, so uh, the thing that that I think is so important is that the vendors figure out an appropriate way to work with the land grants. If they had a land grant ag engineering department with some management teaching going with it, who would teach their farmers and their service reps, their farm reps, that that would be a much better alternative than trying to have everybody, uh, trying to service everybody with, with reps themselves. Yeah. A whole lot of people would be better off. Now there might be one or two multinational companies, might be, that would decide they could afford to keep their own. But I think beyond yeah. that, I think, I think it's a better model. And that's one I'm right now personally trying to get going. I'm just remembering going back to Walt Bisher at, mm-hmm. at Alice Chalmers. I insisted that he have other kinds of machinery in the in the movie. And he did right. 14 other kinds in uh, shots of other, right. including the very on the draft of the movie, the very end. The very last thing we saw was a John Deere planter box with the winged deer on it. Yeah, that was the last thing on the. And so I said to Daryl or whatever the the movie guy was, Daryl, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> do quite that much, and so he took off the wing part. But the, still, the, that was the last thing. And when I got to, I used the same movie when I got to working with International Harvester. The heck, I just got one right. story, and they didn't mind. 
and we were in we were in Kansas City about the about the fourth or fifth workshop we had done with him on weekends. I did weekend workshop, and uh, somebody said, "Oh, you got to get rid of that Alice Chalmers movie. This is an international harvester." And somebody else spoke up. I stayed here the second day because of that movie. I said that. These people are not selling stuff. They're right. they're here as an educational program, and that. And the other the other thing on I just remembered this on the first meeting we had here in Indianapolis. Walt had retired from Alice Chambers at that okay. time. Okay. But he was our our dinner speaker. He was a stand up comedian at oh, that time. Good, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was good. Right. Right. Yes, yeah. Well, he bailed me out. Oh my gosh! One of the, I was just getting started as a speaker, and this is early seventy, and. Um, Noah Hadley was a sure. mentor, uh, a full professor with a BS degree. Mm -hmm. Been a county agent and then was was really ran tight. He's the reason for the Top Farmer Workshop. Anyway, his wife died and he married again. and And he said, "Howard, we're going we're going to Chicago for the weekend with my new wife. Do you and your wife want to go?" Well, yeah, that was nice. So we drove we drove up there. We rode in the back of their car to Chicago, uh, and. Uh, we got to this motel out at the airport, and I saw some people I kind of recognized. The uh, professional farmers were sure. was just getting started, right. uh, or top farmers, I guess, was right. just getting yeah. started. Yeah, professional wasn't there yet. There was top farmers just getting started. And I saw some people coming in, and so I, I said to Barbara, hey, go see what you can learn. Well, she didn't get very far, but we got registered at the desk, and then, and then Noah said, hey, I want you to meet uh, Cliff Ganshaw, I sure, think. Sure, Cliff, yeah. Yeah, so we're sitting in this booth, and we're sitting at the booth, and Barbara is looking through the stuff she picked up. She found out that there was a top farmer workshop there, and so we're just visiting, having coffee, and she's looking through the menu. She says, hey, Howard, you're on the program first. <laughs> Tomorrow morning, you're the first speaker. <laughs> I didn't know that. Well... I went to the room right then to see what, and Walt was there. He was on okay. second. Yeah. Well, Walt was carrying a bunch of slides, and we'd, we were getting acquainted with him. I don't remember if he made the movie yet, but we were getting acquainted. So he and I did a program together. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I will always remember. And so one of the things, we just heard a speaker here at the No-Till Conference talk about most farmers having a return on equity of about 3 to 4%. And Dick Whitman from Idaho pointed out that some of their no-tillers out there have gone to 22 or 23 uh, percent return on equity. What do you think of that? Well, I think that's the right way to look at it. We have an opportunity as, as teachers, an opportunity to help people look at things, help farmers look at things that way. And Dick is, is a pretty good disciple of the activity-based costing the Farm Financial Standards Council right. uh, system. It has a fatal flaw. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if I live long enough, I'll get that. I'll, I'll get that. It may be fatal, but they're making money. <laughs> well, the, 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 it's, it's harder than it needs to be. Right. That's, okay. that's right. the point. It's harder than it needs to be, and it's sometimes misleading. But, but I... Thanks to being here today and here, here in Dick, I wrote down the way I'm going to, to present my position with Dick again. And the last time I was in his house, you've been to his Sure, home. absolutely. And, Mike and, and I have been there. Yes, yes. Well, when I was there uh, the, the last time, we were having lunch, and I looked up on his desk, and he's got a, he's got 
a three bowl notebook of the Purdue Tough Farmer workshop. He's been to my workshop. Okay. And, uh, and he said, yeah, Hart, keep going. I, I'm satisfied, he said, keep going on your, uh, oh, well, Frank, last month, <laughs> this thing we're talking about, I'm talking about, uh, I made the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> oh my gosh, I read it, I missed you. Letters to the editor, okay. mark to market, I said. And if that creates assets, mark assets to mark, which is what I have right. problems with the activity-based costing, they don't do that uh, uh, in, a, in an appropriate way. And so mark to market, <laughs> and, and if, it, if it creates problems, solve them in another way. Don't right. do it in the accounting, which is the way the U.S. accountants now do it. And, and that's not necessary. And I'm, 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 if I live long enough, I will succeed in getting that uh, revised enough. It's not a big deal. In terms of following the rules, it's not a big deal. Right. But just, it's really just one rule change, but it makes all the difference in the world and how people understand and comprehend and also get, get to a, an ROE more appropriately. But thanks, thanks for asking that. I'd like you guys to see if you can remember your very first encounter with one another. Well, I would say it's at a Top Farmer workshop, probably in um, 87, 88. Long okay. in there someplace. Okay. Okay. Howard's so damn busy running these, he wouldn't remember me. <laughs> <laughs> what happened on this is it was a two or three day event. And the first day, maybe on a Sunday afternoon, the farmer would come in and put all his projections in and everything. Yes. And then overnight, the computer would run. Yes. You, you can describe it better well, than I can. Yes. Actually, 72 hour workshop, Sunday afternoon to Wednesday noon. Intentionally, as we learned what we were doing, now we didn't know when we started, you know how that right. is. But as we learned, we realized our audience was the Eastern Corn Belt. We intentionally wanted people to be able to drive in in the morning and drive home after it ended. And so that was it. We, we ended up starting sometime Sunday afternoon. Typically, people came three, four times in five or six years. They, they tested where they were now. They got better, mean more timely, right. because of the linear program crop budget. The the key thing in, in that kind of a budget is a is a an estimate of the value of timeliness. And it's not five dollars an hour on May first. All right, it's hunt in the hundreds. And that's and that's one of the flaws in in, in the activity based costing. They're not picking up the opportunity cost, but you do pick it up in the linear program. And it and and so on the, uh, the first, you get better, timely, then you get bigger, you realize, hey, we can rent more land because that's one of the four things people test. What's the best, let's see, what's the best crop mix? What's the best machinery size? What's the best tillage system? What's the best farm size? And you can do them in different orders and maybe you don't do all of them, but you can do all of those. And when you change one, then you ch probably change the other. So it's going on and on. And some people, well, Sam Swinford died this fall. He'd been to everyone, 50 years yeah, or 51 years. He had been to most of our no-till conferences and I saw his son Aaron this morning. Is he here? Yep. Oh, I got to see him because we, we had a good time at his dad's, if it sounds right, a good time at his dad's funeral. It was a very yeah. impressive. It was a very impressive place. So what they would do is they would fill these forms out on Sunday afternoon, and then on Monday afternoon or so, you'd get it back, and then you could readjust it. Make and another change. It again. You have two hours for computer each day, Sunday, uh, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday morning, and, uh, and then take home. Typically, they'd, they'd leave a budget, and in the early years, 
uh, until we started having, until my wife started having uh, cousin camp for the grandkids in early August. I took back every one of the last budgets to the Indiana farmers. And so, Frank, this got me out on the farms. Right, right. And see, good. And it was a, a, a big commitment, but it was a big personal right. payoff. What Howard's talking about opportunity costs, if, correct me if I get off of base here, but normally you would plant corn first, and then after that you plant soybeans. Mm -hmm. So if you get to maybe May 10th and you've got a couple of days of rain and you're late with corn, then your soybeans get pushed back. But Howard would show that if you had another planter and you could start those soybeans on time, your opportunity cost might be worth as much as 300 bucks an hour, right? Something like that. Well, but for a two-row planter, how about for a four-row planter? <laughs> okay. How about for an eight? How about for a 12? $2,667 is the biggest shadow price I saw for a one-hour mist on May 1st. Yep, he used to call them shadow pricing. Think of that. So you don't catch that in accounting. We do catch it in linear program. That's the biggest shadow price I ever saw. And, and that came from a farm in Havana, Illinois. It was 72 acres of planter, or 72 rows of planter they had on the farm. And they were just tractor drivers, sixth graders. Yeah. But I spent all day filling out the input form with them. They went up to supper, and, and I sent it back on a teletype back to Purdue, because we had to use the mainframe at that time. And then, they, then I went up to supper, we came back, I dialed up the thing, and this, this thing came out 2,667 on the setup. <laughs> and Sam said to Johnny, I told you that was 22,000 or something, not 200, because we'd kind of figured it yeah. on, on the blackboard by hand about what it was going to be. Right. If you miss an hour on the best day, when do you make it up? It's not the next day, because nobody has a one-day planning system, right? Right. Yeah, so what is your planning? Is it six days, eight days, 10 days, 12 days? Something like that. And, and of course, that was a big thing to find out what was likely the best planning system. But if you, whenever you miss an hour, you make it up on the end. And that's true in the spring, and that's true in the fall. And a lot of guys this fall in eastern Corn Belt are going to remember that next September. There's still beans in the field. start a couple of days earlier next September, and thus not have any more corn or beans still in the field. We've still got beans in the field. Today, I drove past it, I'm coming out right. there. And so, years like this in the Eastern Corn Belt, people will remember for a while. Right. So, so yeah, that, the shadow price, the opportunity cost, that was the big thing. And, and, and I, some of the most fun times I've had, I've given that speech 900 times in eight countries around the world. And the first question is, if you miss an hour on the best planning day, when do you make it up? Right. And I get fun. I have fun tomorrow. Well, what are, what are other answers? And eventually, somebody will say at the end. And, and uh, I, I was I was at the in Budapest, Karl Marx University, giving this speech with communist measure. And so we were calculating through an interpreter, and and through goodness knows what meters and so forth. Well, anyway, we came up with a number, which was I, I realized later was more than these guys were making in a year. <laughs> I, I didn't catch that until after. But, but anyway, anyway, when I said, what do you do if you miss an hour? Somebody said, go to, go to the barn and get another platter. <laughs> <laughs> they, they didn't have very good distribution of uh, parts, and so they carried it. I don't know why they didn't use it, but, right. they, but they carried it, an extra platter. The last year I 
ran the workshop. I had a farmer in, in Illinois, excuse me, in Iowa. So he's giving his speech and he turns to me and he says, Howard, do you remember where we met? I didn't have a clue. I just knew I had helped him and three of his combine drivers uh, work on their input form on Sunday afternoon at a previous top farmer workshop and, and I saw them making changes and I remembered that. And so that's why I invited him to come and speak. Well, so anyway, where do we supposed to meet? Karl Marx University in oh, wow. Play. He said, you were there teaching them about timeliness. And I was there trying, as a Chicago banker, trying to figure out how to loan them money. Wow. And I heard your presentation. You invited me to come to the Top Farmer Workshop. <laughs> I came. I'm now farming 12,000 acres in Iowa. I think he's up to 15 or 18 now. And you're still standing here. <laughs> well, I, I've enjoyed every minute right. of those standing years. <laughs> we got to wrap this up. Howard, it was oh, great. This is, not, fun. this is not only educational, but an enlightening and entertaining. Well, it's fun. Oh, you made my day. It made my day, Frank. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Before we wrap up this episode, Frank is going to share a question that came from a listener email. A reader recently asked us what we thought was the uh, future acreage uh, for no-till. And it reminded me that back in 1972, there were only 3.2 million acres when we started no-till farmer. That increased to about 51 million acres in the year 2000. And the recent 2017 Ag Census from the United States Department of Agriculture pegs the no-till acreage at 104 million acres. About a year or so ago, we estimated that the no-till acreage by 2019 would increase to about 107 million acres, so we're in the ballpark on that. And then our best crystal ball guess for 2030 is that no-till will be used on about 145 million acres in the U.S., and we would think the worldwide no-till acreage would reach around 470 million acres in 2030, which is an increase from 388 million worldwide no-till acres in 2013. Thanks to Frank Lester and Howard Doster for today's talk. Similar stories can also be found in Frank's book, From Maverick to Mainstream, which is available at notillfarmer.com forward slash notillmaverick. Again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovations podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about No-Till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.